From Yeshiva Har Torah in New York, I'm Dr. Pesha Klotenik, and this is the YHT POV, our school's official podcast. Joining us today um, is Rabbi Dove Lerner. Um, as we approach Yom Kippur, and we're at the beginning of the school year, um, I thought it would be nice to have a new parent and a rabbi, and I couldn't decide which way to go, so I figured, Rabbi Lerner, you fit both. Thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. It is my absolute pleasure. Rabbi Lerner is the rabbi of the Young Israel of Jamaica States. Um, and the clinical assistant professor at the Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought at Yeshiva University. Um, he's no stranger to Yeshiva University, having gotten smicha there. Um, but Rabbi Lerner also holds a PhD in um, Judaism from the Divinity School at the University of Chicago. That is a broad, a broad degree in Judaism. Everything. Anything about Judaism, I know. Okay, I'm going to keep that in mind. So... Thank you for joining us. I know that this is a very busy time for a shul rabbi, and we appreciate No, you. not at all. There's nothing <laughs> on my calendar. Nothing going on today. No, no big holidays. Um, um, I guess let's start at the, the very beginning of your um, rabbinic journey. What, what made you decide to go into the rabbinate? Well, I have, being the clinical assistant professor, a deep clinical self-loathing. <laughs> drew me into, into a position that people would tell jokes to me about from the youngest age that no good Jewish boy becomes a rabbi. <laughs> um, so it's interesting. I actually, I know a lot of uh, young people have ambitions at some point to be, uh, you know, uh, a policeman or a fireman or an astronaut. And I don't actually have uh, any memories of having vocational dreams at a young age. I've been wanting to retire since I was about four. Oh. Um, <laughs> But the first vocational thought I had was the rabbinate. And I, it was about 16, 14, 15, 16. Uh, and it was a combination of factors. I mean, on the one hand, I had truly excellent role models uh, as rabbis, uh, both as teachers at school and uh, pastoral pulpit rabbis who uh, were, for me, always uh, drew my attention as just being models of integrity. Uh, moral leadership caught my attention. Uh, so on the one hand, I had great models who were in those posts and uh, the reverence that my family showed to rabbis. And we weren't, strictly speaking, uh, the most uh, well-versed, halachically fluent family, but there was a deep reverence shown for rabbinic leadership. Um, and that esteem also gave me a signal that this is a, a valuable vocation. Um, my father was deeply involved in Jewish education, he was a teacher when he was very young, uh, but then went into educational administration, fundraising, community building. And my mother was a, a physician working actually uh, in London for the NHS, the National Health Service, uh, which uh, gave me also a sense of pastoral contribution uh, and care for the community. And I think those culminated together to give me a push. That this was um, the perfect way to express my self-loathing. <laughs> and how's it been working out? Oh, the loathing couldn't be better. <laughs> no, I mean being a rabbi. <laughs> oh, I see, right. Um, yes, it's, it, thank God it's going very well. I've had um, been very, very fortunate to have uh, incredibly supportive communities and mentors all the way through from my training at YU, 
Uh, I spent time as a rabbinic intern at Lincoln Square Synagogue for two years. Uh, rabbi Robinson, was a, uh, who's the current senior rabbi there, was at the time a, a tremendous uh, mentor and also being from the United Kingdom, not from England, from Scotland, but close enough from the United Kingdom, um, was uh, a cultural uh, anchor for me as well. Um, and then I made my way out to Chicago and I was an assistant rabbi uh, to uh, rabbi Leonard Matanke, who's head of uh, the Ida Kran Jewish Academy in Chicago, and the rabbi of the Shul, where I was assistant rabbi, also uh, gave me uh, profound insight into communal administration, leadership, halachic expertise. Um, and now I'm here in Queens in the young Israel of Jamaica state, blessed with an incredible lay leadership who really carry the community and give me the opportunity to look like it's me, even though it's not. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I'm sure you're some of it. <laughs> nah. Well, I provide the British accent, so <laughs> I get a nice cover. That's, that's enough. <laughs> yeah. But uh, with your with your accent, uh, what what messages um, have you shared, or will you be sharing with your congregation to inspire them or prepare them for Yom Kippur? That's a good question. Now I get congregants tell me all the time that I could just read the phone book and they would be very happy. Nice. Um, so I'm thinking of saving myself time and just trying that at Colin Gray <laughs> and see how that goes. Um, but obviously I'm not going to disclose what I'll talk about on Yom Kippur. Oh, that's right. Then they're not going to come to shore. Because Right. Because the only <laughs> reason they come is to hear what I've got to say. Yes. <laughs> so, but... Rosh Hashanah, I view very much as a way of setting the stage. And of course, the weeks before in Elul uh, was one way to kind of gear up for this period of reflection and introspection. I did a, um, a three-part series of Shirim midweek uh, on Zoom. Most of our educational uh, activities that are not on Shabbat is happening on Zoom to be as inclusive as possible. And we've also found uh, educationally, it's actually quite helpful. In many ways, it's democratizing. People can come wherever they are. They can wear whatever they want below the waist and they can uh, relax. Um, and we had a three-part series where I spoke about uh, why good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people, the perennial question. I solved the issue. So yes, no what is the reason? Well, you have to, you had to be at the series. I oh. solved it. <laughs> I did it quietly. Um, it was an exploration of how it's been addressed uh, across the ages and a reflection of how uh, responses have peaked and waned depending on how communities are doing with anxiety and a sense of luxury and what provides the most comfort, really. Um, but I, I hope that was a helpful way to set the stage and present how across the spectrum you've had views that everything is a response to our spiritual condition and if that gives people comfort it works for them and other the other side that we don't know why things happen and we have to make the pivot that rabbi Sachs and rabbi Soloveitchik make which is not to ask why things happen but what can i do now that they have and to feel empowered about that so that was one way to set the stage um, um if people are interested or suffer from insomnia i'm very happy to share the links yes to those recordings um, in addition, we did a master workshop before Rosh Hashanah, just 45 minutes, and uh, to try and build up some fluency with the liturgy, so that as we go through it, it doesn't take us by surprise every time every time we turn the page. So we went through uh, Unatana Tokev, seeing that the four-part movement that it makes to again kind of carry us through 
uh, anxieties and urgencies and find a way to channel our anxieties and urgency into purpose as opposed to just uh, fear. Um, the Shabbat Shuvadrasha this Shabbat was specifically on the topic of fear and faith and whether there is a biblical obligation to feel fear or avoid fear um, and the conclusions that we came to on that going through positions from Ruf Koch and Maimonides and Chazal, we brought in Seneca, the Stoic and Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, um, because when I was doing my PhD in the entirety of Judaism, I had to occasionally look at something not Jewish as well. A leap um, of faith, I guess, right? Leap of faith uh, and a lot of fear, indeed. <laughs> a lot of fear, yes. And, um, and Rosh Hashanah, interestingly enough, on thinking about children, um, uh, my primary message in the drasha was uh, that we are called in some ways to try and embrace the inner child in all of us to uh, endure challenge. Um, I try to root it in a reading of the Akedah when Avram decides what to take with him. Avram is summoned in the middle of the night to go on a journey and sacrifice his son. And we're told he does four things when he wakes up. Um, firstly, he saddles a donkey which I guess is important if you're going to yeah. ride a donkey or yeah. use a donkey to carry things. Second, he cuts up wood for the sacrifice, which again makes sense if he doesn't know what he's going to find there. Third, he wakes up Yitzhak because, you know, he needs the sacrifice and he brings Shneina Arav, Ito, his two youths with him. And the primary response, I have no idea if, if you or your listeners are fans of my cousin Vinny, but I'm told two youths is a very central pivot plot <laughs> yes. in that movie. And as soon as I mentioned they had to bring two youths with him, that was the end, that was the end of, <laughs> yes. of any attention that people could pay <laughs> as they were trying to figure out if I was doing a parody or not. <laughs> yes. um, so the question, of course, was why I get why he brings the donkey in the wood and his kid gets hurt. Why does he bring these two youths? I wish I had to on day two when I was doing this to all the two young men. Yes. So that yes. no one would Language is everything. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and one view why he brings the two young men uh, was actually to insulate himself emotionally so he didn't spend three days alone with his son facing the prospect of this trial of their lives. Uh, an alternative view, uh, more a little more brutal, uh, from the 19th century exegete, the Malbim, suggested he had these two youths to hold Yitzhak down in the event that he tried to flee. Um, but actually the final reading we settled with was from a rabbi from Chicago, Menachem Zion, Rabbi Menachem Sachs, uh, who took the view that Shnein Arav doesn't mean two youths. And Avram was not a fan of my cousin Vinny. And actually <laughs> Shnein Arav does not mean, Shnei doesn't mean two, Shnei means the years of, like the word Shana. And Shnein Arav means he took with him the years of his youth. And Avram facing this trial, the unfathomable prospect of sacrificing his son, uh, took the view that he had to embrace childhood resilience to make it through. And I observed that uh, for all the regulations and the protective measures that we've all had to make over the last two years, uh, some of the most resilience we actually find in, in children. And I just anecdotally, I found my kids, uh, The what I shared was that I remember telling Ariella, who's in uh, kindergarten, a YHT, and my younger daughter, Orly, saying that, you know, we've got to wear masks now, expecting a huge amount of pushback. And they said, 
okay. And I said, and school's going to be closed for a little bit because of the germs, expecting profound reflections on what a germ. They said, okay. So, what do you mean, okay? No, this is insane. Um, and then I realized that three weeks after COVID had hit, either way, I would have said, oh, by the way, we can't eat bread for a week because 3,000 years ago. And they would have just said, okay. okay. And then we'd sing songs about it. Uh, and, and, every, and it struck me that for kids, everything is unprecedented. Everything is unprecedented. That's so true. what was unprecedented for us, we find incredibly hard to adapt and kids don't. And Avram managed to discover his inner resilience. Uh, although I did conclude by saying that, of course, um, not all kids uh, are resilient or capable of overcoming trauma. And one of the anchors they need, uh, we should all try to express, which is unconditional love, just to try and find a way to love each other, to help us have that resilience and confidence that we're here for each other, no matter what happens, we'll make it through. And I hope that kind of set up the community for Yom Kippur, because last year I remember saying, you know, next year, please God, COVID will be gone, it'll be a distant memory. Uh, and with a measure of humility and distance, uh, we can't offer promises like that. That's true. And I, I think when you mention luxury, you know, just thinking about the liturgy, how many years did we look at the text and say, oh, plagues, I know we're playing for, you know, we're praying not to have any plagues, but, you know, what, that's an old fashioned thing, you know, that's a throwback, or floods, or destroy, you know, and, and now the past couple of years is very humbling. It's like, oh, well, we do need to be praying for this. We do have an illness that we, we haven't tackled. And I, I think that balance of the, you know, just, feeling secure and still having that humility is, is hard, is hard. Absolutely. The liturgy has certainly come to life in new ways. Sure. So thinking about just our parent body going into young people, um, you know, as a, it's hard as a parent because you want to you wanna have those meaningful moments for yourself. At the same time, you know, there's those precious years that you have children that you're raising. You know, there's a balance there, and I guess just in general, how how do we make Yom Kippur meaningful for young children, um, children of all ages? It's open-ended. You know, what advice do you have to parents about how to approach, you know, this day in a meaningful way for the kids? It's an excellent question, a perennial question, um, and not easy to answer. How do we make a day that even for adults can be hard to process and hard to glean meaning from, meaningful for young children. Um, and I'll be the first to say, despite my expertise in Judaism, I don't have, uh, you know, fix all solutions uh, to meaning for me or uh, my children. There, I mean, there are a couple of avenues uh, that are good to explore. Um, there's uh, my wife's family, uh, historically, I'm told, was relatively uh, unique on the American scene. She's got her father and grandfather and great-grandfather had a large sibling costs. So they were a very large, expansive family of cousins, fourth cousins. And somebody apparently did a dissertation on uh, the family history because what made them unique was there was very little assimilation. That once they their family came to the United States, says, uh, refugees and as they came here for opportunity uh, often a large proportion would walk away from Jewish life with the freedoms that American society offered 
And it tended to be that across the Orthodox spectrum, the, the whole family seemed to maintain their connection to Jewish life. And the study concluded that the uh, connecting line from all branches of the family was uh, song, was song. They all loved to sing. Uh, and they had shared songs that you can go to Bob of Hasidim, uh, parts of the family, you can go to the more uh, modern Orthodox parts of the family, and they have the same family tunes. Uh, and song is a deep, deep way to bring meaning. Uh, and actually, my uh, in-laws came back from Israel a couple of weeks ago with a, uh, a book that you press buttons on to make music, and the, uh, the kids, who are huge fans of any screen they can find, have actually <laughs> neglected the screen for a couple of days and spent hours just rotating, pressing these buttons. And wow. song is an incredibly meaningful thing. So there's a way to harness either the sound of the liturgy uh, or song for children as for adults. I think many missed tunes when we uh, skipped parts of the liturgy last year. And I think it's an opportunity to harness those moments uh, if we're able to um, just even the wordless tunes can, you know, you begin Mariv on the Yamim Nora'im and the na 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 na. Even that, it, it kind of brings back memory, it evokes all sorts of meaning. Um, so, song, uh, stories. Uh, again, my experience with children is primarily limited to my children and others who have uh, been forced to sit in my company as a rabbi at the shawl. Um, but I find uh, stories. Uh, of course, for grown-ups, uh, an amazing way to connect, and for kids. Um, now, Rosh Hashanah, we had the stories that we read about the binding of Isaac and the expulsion of Yishmael, which is not always uh, easy to speak with children about. Um, Yom Kippur, the laning in the morning, is very procedural. It's about sacrifices and ritual. But the afternoon story, the story of the Book of Jonah, is a fabulous way to speak to children uh, because of its um, self-conscious inflated sense of reality with huge whales and massive storms. In fact, uh, Aviva Zornberg in her reading of the book notes that the word Gadol, it's only four chapters long, the word Gadol appears 14 times. There is a huge vastness to the literary imagination of Yona, uh, which speaks to the sense of um, curiosity and imaginativeness that children have. And we've got a number of books at home about the book of Jonah. It's great to read and it contains themes of truth and fear uh, and obstacles and duty and responsibility, family, care for those beyond our kin. It's a fabulous way to uh, read and engage. Uh, and if you've got great images, it's even better in my experience for the kids. They love to see pictures. And when I say kids, I mean, who doesn't like a picture book? Of course, everybody loves a good picture book. That's true. Uh, tapping into the stories and the songs. And it's true when you hear those tunes. And I know that, I don't want to sound old fashioned, but sometimes, you know, there are new tunes that people like to bring in. And and I just feel like there's certain ones that we return to every year, you know, Kaddish, Kedusha. Like, they just summon up those feelings for sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, right. And the truth is, uh, I don't want to sound old fashioned, uh, but I'm getting to or of an age now where there was a phase in my life where even small things like Shalom Aleichem on Friday night, there was a tune I picked up at Yeshiva or there was a tune I heard somebody sing and I thought, yeah, I want to do that tune. And I'm now getting to a point where actually part of me feels meaning and comfort in singing the tunes that I heard as a child growing up, even though for like my adolescent phase, I thought, oh gosh, this is so old fashioned. <laughs> yes. 
that connective tissue with the past uh, is deeply meaningful. Um, and stabilizing those tunes for our kids in the home so they have those to draw back on when they go through their adolescent phase and come old fashioned mm -hmm. uh, like me. I can't speak for you. <laughs> you know, I, well, enjoy. I'm a hair and away the, from calling out during show. That's the wrong tune. <laughs> so, well, go for it. Embrace them. I don't know if that's going to go over well. You know, yeah, I was, rabbis love that. Rabbis love people <laughs> calling out in show. Yes. I'm sure. Um, and the truth is, speaking about uh, Yom Kippur, just, I was just reminded that something I saw a few years ago that we tried to do for a while, and of course, everything's a mad rush. So this is all in the hypothetical fairy tale realm of things working out in advance of Yom Tov. Uh, but there was somebody suggested, you know, with kids, part of an excitement preparing for holidays, of course, the preparation. And when it's Sukkot, you get to decorate the Sukkah. When it's Rosh Hashanah, you get to prepare the honey or the apple or the pomegranate seeds. And Yom Kippur is a very vacant holiday in terms of preparation, other than stuff your face as much as you can and then regret it instantly. Um, so how do you... So one suggestion was lay the table as you would for a Yom to put out a nice uh, tablecloth, prepare it, have place settings uh, without the... Uh, what are those called? Cutlery and crockery. Yes. Well, that flatware. I don't flatware. know why. Flatware. <laughs> it's flat. Nobody wears it and it's not flat. But either way. <laughs> right. But to find a way to have play settings and instead of food, uh, have everybody pick a book or a safer and put it in front of their place. Uh, and that will be their, their nutrition over the coming day. That's what they'll focus on. That's what they'll study or read together. And it's a way to prepare mentally for a day that isn't meant to be vacant, but is meant to be without food. Uh, but we can still find ways to sustain ourselves uh, and yeah. nutrition. Mm -hmm. I yeah. think preparation is, you know, key with kids, getting the excitement, the enthusiasm, the buildup. Right. Here's a topic I've thought about, um, and I, I not, I don't, uh, I'm not promoting one way or the other. Um, when I was younger, and I don't, you'll tell me if it's your situation too. I, I sat next to my mom in shul, and I know that there are parts of shul that are just very boring for children. And I think the movement to have youth groups and youth minyanim. Um, I think has really added an element that, that was missing a lot to shul, but I wonder sometimes if we don't also have that sitting in shul piece, are we losing something? I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the topic. Uh, I think it's a, a fascinating topic and difficult to address. If I think back to my childhood, all those many, many, many years ago, before I was old fashioned, um, <laughs> I... It's interesting. I've not reflected on it too much because the truth is I didn't really get to sit next to my father too much uh, because he ran the children's service at Shul. <laughs> okay. um, and my father, uh, to this day, with his kids now out of the house, he will sit by the door of the Shul to be the greeter. Um, and he was always very focused on volunteerism and community. And this was part of, I noted earlier, his connection to education. He brought that into uh, the shul. So we had children's services, but my experience was a little different. I obviously did not grow up in American groups, so, and I've not spent a huge amount of time from beginning to end of group. Um, but the children's services that I grew up with uh, were overtly educational uh, and were run by adults rather than youth leaders. Uh, so my father would uh, 
The children's service would begin at around laning time, so it wouldn't be available from like 9am. So people would have to bring their kids a little later, and then it would last for about an hour till the end of shul. Uh, and it would be a miniature service where my father would, we'd sing the appropriate songs, we'd obviously have a, a pared down version of the service. Uh, he would go through what's in the parasha that week, there'd be questions. Uh, we'd get a sense of the shape of what davening looks like. It was a miniature congregation, essentially. Um, and there were stories told and it created a camaraderie among the different ages. We weren't split up uh, among our year groups. We were all sitting together uh, and there, it, like it was a miniature congregation. And there was a huge gain. Uh, as you say, there's a lot to gain in these things when you actually give attention to children and they don't feel like a fly on the wall or a tag on along, but this is crafted for them. Um, and there were that you kind of evolved from that into what we call the intermediate service, which was just pre-Bar Bat Mitzvah, where the service was not abbreviated. And you've got a sense of what does shul look like? So when I do start sitting in the main shul at some point, um, this isn't going to hit me by surprise. I'm going to know what to expect and how to run. And then we graduated from the intermediate service to the youth service, where we weren't just led by adults to become fluent, but we, let, we were led ourselves. Uh, I remember being a, a youth service leader, which meant I had to organize the laning every week. Um, and uh, we together with the youth organizers had to organize a kiddish every week. If there was going to be a speaker, we had uh, Shabbat plans. And it was um, a tutorial in how to lead shul. So it gave deep confidence and fluency. Um, now, the other side of the coin, the cost that you indicate uh, is that that connective tissue we noted uh, in the context of the past and nostalgia, uh, the children might not have in terms of, I come to shore because that's where I grew up sitting next to my parent and I feel anchored in the community. Um, so that nostalgia, that connective tissue is somewhat severed and we have to find other ways to make children feel that they're part of the main shul as well. Because what tends to happen if they spend their time only in groups, is they don't feel attached to the main shul. And that means when it's time to enter the main shul, they're ready to go to a break off. Or break away, man, right? Right, right. Meaning that's not my shul. My shul was a youth group and I'm not part of that old fuddy-duddy thing. Mm -hmm. So that kind of uh, deepening uh, and embedding of memories and a community awareness uh, that we do care about people who are older and different needs and memories and cultures um, can be lost and we have to find ways to compensate for that. Um, so yes, yeah, not an easy answer, but I, I think um, giving children the attention they need to make sure feel like it's a place for them is an, an immense strength, but also feeling like there are times to be by uh, one's family can also be powerful uh, and it's making a balance I think I think the balance I think the balance is the goal that we should have because certainly you know children who sat next to their parents and experienced shul as boring or long you know that that kind of takes away their interest in it in the long run um, so we don't want that to happen at the same time I guess when I close my eyes and I I remember what it's like to sit in shul, and I, I shared with you before, Rabbi Lerner, that I'm a, I'm a rabbi's daughter. I'm also a rabbi's granddaughter, rabbi's granddaughter. So I grew up, when I was a young child, I was in my Zaydi shul. And so just the, the sort of feeling when you're sitting in a shul as a small child and everybody's quiet, 
and the space is holy. And it's not necessarily, for lack of a better word, I don't want, I don't mean it like you should be uncomfortable, but it's not as comfortable. And sometimes, you know, you go to a youth group and like your shoes are off or you're, you know, you're not sitting necessarily in a certain way. And I feel like there's something lost without that. This is how we feel and behave in a holy space. And I think that that's, you know, in some ways generational, in some ways American. I know you're not American, but in some ways American, um, you know, like, just this idea, you know, that we have to bring snacks in because the children are getting hung get hungry for the whole hour that they're sitting in shul. I, I think there's a lot that we do in society, not necessarily in Jewish world, in society to make, you know, restaurants more kid-free or life more kid-free, where it's okay for a child to come in and have a little bit of awe, a little bit of, oh, the Torah's out, we're standing up, we're standing quiet. You know, I think that, that in some ways, if we could strike the balance and have children feel that a little bit, um, I think that's also an important lasting sort of just tangible way to feel, you know, this is holy, this is different. Yeah, I think, yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. For the record, in case ICE is listening, I am an American citizen now. I'm not born here. <laughs> okay, I'm but sorry. I don't want I immigration. <laughs> yeah, I don't want immigration knocking on the door. Later. No, I, I meant, you know, just culturally. <laughs> Right, right. No, I love hot dogs and football, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> sure. Um, and I'm going to every baseball game at the moment. Is it season at the time? <laughs> I think we're wrapping something up. <laughs> there you go. So I'll, yeah, I'm connected to that. I know the tennis just finished and a British uh, woman won, I think, the US Open. Yes, that's true. I saw Good. that. In the go. newspaper, though. Not, not, <laughs> not an actual... I didn't watch the game. I, I say she didn't win in the newspaper, right? She, <laughs> right. she really won, I hope. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. But I think it was Friday night anyway. So, yeah, we missed that. We missed um, it. So, so, yes. And there's a wonderful uh, book by uh, Emmanuel Levinas, who's a French-Jewish philosopher of the 20th century, uh, called Difficult Freedom. Now, it's not a child-friendly book. It's not designed for children. It's, tr frankly, it's not an adult-friendly book. I was going to say, it's not so friendly in general. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not a friendly book, let's put it that way. I guess that's why it starts with the word difficult. Um, but he's got a, a chapter in there called A Religion for Adults, or Adults, as Americans would say, um, where he essentially uses the premise that the temple grounds was an alcohol-free zone, that there was a prohibition uh, on intoxication for anybody on temple grounds to suggest that Judaism at its core is a religion of sobriety, uh, of seriousness, where there are faiths that are rooted in intoxication and sort of transcendence that is rooted in something uh, irrational or beyond our comprehension. Judaism is kind of rooted in a rational sobriety that sees life as infinitely valuable and requiring all our mental and rational tools to engage with our responsibility. So I think children recognizing that at the core, Judaism and life is not just catered to our needs, but is also a, a space of sacrifice uh, and accommodation to things uh, that we have a duty towards rather than what we can glean from. Right. Uh, is central. I remember having a conversation uh, when I was not uh, a rabbi, so I didn't have any vested interest. Uh, this was uh, in Chicago the year before I became assistant rabbi, where peers of mine were saying, you know, why should I be a member of a shul? You know, I, I don't really go that often. And 
when I do, I don't get to eat that much at Kiddush. Like, what am I getting <laughs> yeah. for my money? Um, and the conversation steered around, well, actually, a member of a shul is not just about, you know, this isn't like a subscription service where I get something for yeah. my money. This is uh, a duty to support communal life and be part of something larger than ourselves. And if I give money and I don't get something for it, but somebody else does, because I'm standing in the breach to keep our culture alive, uh, that's a duty fulfilled. And I think, yeah, I, I don't think that means we ought to torment children. No. In ways, <laughs> no. But I think it does mean that having a sense that there's something larger than us, that I have an obligation to be part of something that is not always tailored to me, uh, is also a helpful pedagogical lesson as well, even if it's not expressed. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Memories that I have of sitting shawl as a young boy, actually feeling overwhelmed at times that uh, I remember vividly sitting next to a boy who was maybe five years older than me on Friday night being there and they were singing Lecha Dodi and he was sitting there singing with his suit of clothes. And I thought, oh my God, how does he know all the words? I'm never going to know all these <laughs> words. And the truth is to this point, uh, my, my uh, impression is he's, he's no longer orthodox and he's no longer observant. <laughs> okay, so. and, and I ended up driven to compete to know yeah. all those words and now I'm in the rabbinate. So that's there you go. Question. You have oh. a PhD in Judaism. Yeah, everything. <laughs> Mainly focusing on the Chadodi recitation. That was my specialty. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, just in terms of, you know, other thoughts about challenges that our children have today. Uh, any, any specific challenges come to mind? Any solutions to the challenges? Um, no solutions and <laughs> some sense of the challenges. I mean, I don't know which official generation I'm part of. I don't know which generation we're up to, Z or Z, as we say. Um, I think officially I'm a millennial, but I don't know when that begins or ends. But I'm still coming to grips with the challenges my generation faces. But yeah, there are unquestionably challenges posed by uh, a whole number of uh, systems that people parade around all the time. Technological challenges, social challenges, challenges of media, cultural changes uh, that are gonna, uh, that are shifting in ways beneath our feet. Cultural change, every change is accelerated by modern technology, whether it's theological, cultural, moral, political, um, all these changes are rapid um, and it's hard to process. Um, anxiety is up across the board and the pandemic has of course compounded that. Uh, division, um, activism and a sense of irrational commitment uh, to sides like they are sports rather than lives uh, is on the rise. Um, and I think there are challenges that new children face dealing with the kind of parents that we are, still processing the changes that we face. That's true. And um, I, I don't have neat solutions other than to turn back to uh, the expression of unconditional love with uh, a sense of expectation uh, that we are part of something larger than ourselves, um, that we love our children no matter what, but we also expect our children no matter what uh, to be part of something bigger than themselves and repay and reflect that unconditional love, not as a uh, unilateral absorption on their part, 
but as a mutual duty to express to others too. Um, but I don't have neat answers, and uh, I will be uh, at your uh, <laughs> at your mercy as well, Dr. Klatenik, among many others who rely on the wisdom of our educators uh, and experts. I think I think both educators and rabbis are our greatest. Um, achievement will be if we achieve it that uh, that the Torah remains timeless and relevant so while times change um, you know we should be able to look back to the Torah and the messages and have be grounded there um, that's certainly I view that as my challenge I assume as a rabbi that is that is a challenge you face yeah perpetual challenge to take uh messages that are bound by time and make them timeless or revive them in ways that breathe and resonate in new ways so yes it is a challenge mm -hmm. and if you want to help with any of the coming drushes more than happy more <laughs> sure. than happy sure i think i think i think anyone who studies uh talmud or hazal the just underlying optimism that the rabbis do have just in terms of the perpetuity of the Torah, the timelessness of it, um, the total belief, even when shaping halakha, that, you know, oh, in case the Beit HaMikdash is rebuilt, let's make sure we do the halakha in a way that we don't forget the right way to do it. To me, that's the most touching is actually the optimism. So yes, there's anxiety and we have fear. And I, I agree with you. I ask you about challenges, so it's my fault. Um, but um, I hope that, that we can continue just the optimism um, that our, our tradition really the path set us on, like the path that our tradition has set us on. Yeah, it's, it's actually uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who uh, I'm sure many were aware passed away last year. Um, he has a very, very touching uh, and stirring uh, distinction between what he calls optimism and hope. And if some, if people want to look it up, it's a fabulous quote you can use almost any occasion. <laughs> I can um, use it for as with almost any sentence from any of his books. Ah, uh, oh, um, where he says that hope and optimism are different. Fundamentally, one is, uh, he suggests, rooted in a Greek culture and one rooted in a Jewish culture. And he suggests that optimism is a passive virtue and hope is an active virtue. Optimism is the belief that good will happen. And hope is the belief that we can make good happen. Beautiful. And that is kind of the calling of our faith. And you're absolutely right, because for him, belief that everything will be fine is not actually a salvation. It makes us passive and it disenfranchises us. Hope is something that uh, summons us and empowers us uh, to change things and make them better and have the confidence that if we commit to, mm -hmm. we certainly can. Uh, so I think uh, you're absolutely right to uh, bring us to that point uh, that hope drives us forward. Okay. And I have to say on that note, um, my daughter says that they sing Hatik for every day in class. Is that correct? Every that, morning? That's correct. Excellent. Okay, check. I'll ask you everything else that she says that they do. I'll make sure that we're getting recording. Uh, and one of the songs on that uh, book that I mentioned earlier is the Hatikva that they've been pressing. Uh, and it is uh, a source of immense pride and joy that she now knows the Hatikva, uh, which of course is about perennial hope uh, that has sustained us as a people through every calamity and drives us toward our triumph. So 
uh, yes, I'm deeply grateful to the school, deeply grateful to you uh, and her teachers uh, and the parent body uh, for the commitment to our hope. Okay, so the transition's been good. To uh, paraphrase my daughter, great. Great, <laughs> how school, great. <laughs> yeah, which is not a natural response to things ordinarily. So okay. it, she means it, so we're very, very happy, yeah. Rabbi Lerner, thank you for taking time out of uh, your busy schedule. My teaching and inspiring people to, to join us today to prepare for uh, Yom Kippur. My pleasure. Thank you. Wishing everybody a Gemar Chatimah Tova. It should be a, a happy and healthy year and everybody should have a meaningful Yom Kippur. Amen.